Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. Our scripture reading today comes from Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, There were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied, and he commanded me. And the breath came to them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from the graves. O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and write on it, for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join with it the stick of Judah and make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations, among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around, and bring them to their own land. 
and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be over them all, and they shall be no longer two nations. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I give to my servant Jacob, where your, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Well, have you ever worked really hard for something, um, you know, you, you've put in time, you've put in effort, and you've gotten it. You know, if, some, maybe sports, you, you, you won the championship, you, you won the big game, and, and you know how hard you've worked for that. You know, in a few months, in the beginning of February, somebody's going to win the Super Bowl, and whoever that team is, all of those athletes on that team represents not just a season of work, but years and years and years and years of hard work to get to that moment. And maybe some of you, you've recently, maybe this year, it's a big year for you because you closed this big deal. You have been working on this big deal for your company and you have spent sleepless nights. You've worked hard. You've gotten up early. You've been knocked down, but you did it. You got it. You, you won the deal. And maybe it's some other kind of achievement. And you know what it is to work hard. You know what it is to really endure for something. And the reason that you go through that, the, the reason that you're willing to suffer as you have to achieve whatever it is that comes to your mind when I'm talking about this, is because of some promise, because of some hope. You, you believe that on the other side of all this work, there was something that was really good, something that was really going to be worth it, something that was going to make it all worthwhile. Well, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, uh, we've been in this series called Understanding Everything. And that's a bold title, but really what, what we want you to understand in this series is that the Bible, that the Word of God is not just some sort of strange collection of different authors writing different stories or different commands or different themes at different times, but rather by the Spirit of God, by the power of God himself, the Bible comes to us as a complete whole, as a complete narrative, as one grand story, what we call it a, a meta-narrative, one great story. And if you understand that story, you can understand everything. If through the lens of that story, Everything else in your life and in all of the world begins to make sense. Now, of course, <clears throat> I believe, we believe that the Bible is, is fully true. And, and in some senses, it serves as kind of a narrative of world history. But in another sense, it, is, it serves as, by the design of God, a, a true allegory for our lives. There's something in this true story 
that if we understand this true story, it, it helps us relate to every other story that is being told. And so, just in terms of review, to review the story with you, it begins in Genesis. In the first week, uh, we learned about the creation of God, uh, this idea of being, that everything that exists is an overflow of God's character, of God's essence, of God's being. It, it was an extension, as we've been saying, of the great dance, the rhythm and the movement of God himself as displayed in everything that he created. But also in the book of Genesis, we, we learn about the fall. We learn how man stepped out of the dance, how man began to dance to a different tune. And we said that the ultimate definition of sin is this, that man begins to put himself in the place of God. The place that, was, that belongs to God, man begins to see himself there, begins to grab hold of that place. And, and in that, man fell out of alignment with God, fell out of even fellowship with God. And this is what sin does. This is what disobedience to God's order and design always does. It always separates us. It always separates us from one another, and it separates us from God himself. And in the book of Genesis, God is very clear to show the effects of sin and the judgment of God against sin. But eventually God begins to show that despite our sin, despite our corruption, he really loves us. And he begins to show his love to a man named Abraham. Not because of anything that Abraham had done, not because Abraham was so special, but God unconditionally decided to love this man and to bless this man and to bless the family of this man. God said to Abraham, you and your offspring I will make into a great nation. And it will be the kind of nation that will bless every nation. This family will bless every family. Through this family, all of the families, all of the tribes of the world will be blessed. And so this family that God had promised to love began to grow. It began to gain influence. As we talked about last week, God saved this family from famine by actually pre, uh, um, by, by pre-providing a way of salvation for them in Egypt. And when they were in Egypt, uh, God blessed the family all the more. They grew from about 70 people to about 2 million people. But eventually this family fell into bondage. They became slaves in Egypt. They were in a hopeless situation. But God, because he loved them, sent them a savior. He sent them Moses, who delivered them out of Egypt. They experienced, in a very real sense, a great salvation. God brought them out of Egypt. He was making them a people to himself. But as we talked about last week, if you were here, even though God had loved them, even though they were the people that God were loving unconditionally, even though uh, they had been saved from Egypt, they weren't yet a people uh, like God. They weren't yet a holy people. And so God began to heal them, began to heal them from the effects of sin. And how he did this, and this is so important, we talked about it last week, how he did this was his presence was among them. In fact, the theme of what we just read in Ezekiel 37, God's presence was with them. And, and by being near his presence, they were to be made into a holy and a good people, a people of God's chosen possession. And of course, the story continues. After the book of Leviticus, which we looked at last week, how the presence of God is to dwell near people, we see the book of Numbers, where God restores them to the land, where God gives them back 
the promised land and establishes them in this place where his presence would be and where this people of God would be known and would begin to bless the whole world. Eventually, as the story goes on in First and Second Samuel, we read that God gives them a king and they have a capital city, Jerusalem, and there's a palace and eventually there's a permanent temple, a place where the glory of God could be known and it was a glorious place and they were a glorious people. They were strong people and people from all over the world even were coming to hear the wisdom of King Solomon and, and all of a sudden you start to see, oh my goodness, this, this promise that God made to Abraham is becoming true. They've become this great people. I see it. I see how God is restoring himself and restoring his presence and restoring his order through the world, through this family. But then, as it always does, sin began to creep in and the people forgot about the order of God and they began putting themselves in the place of God. And as sin always does, sin divided them. Sin divided them from God, and ultimately it divided them from one another. And this great nation that God had put together divided into two nations. And this is a big part of Old Testament narrative, where you have the ten tribes, ten of the tribes that made up Israel formed this northern nation, sometimes called Samaria. This is the tribe of Dan and Reuben and Ephraim and many others. And then there was two tribes namely the tribes of Judah and Benjamin that made up this southern kingdom. And there's a lot of narrative that goes on in this story, but we see these people forgetting about God. At one point, the word of God was totally lost among them. The kings were corrupt among them. They went the way of the world. Uh, it's, It's a fascinating and sad story all at the same time. At one point, even this northern kingdom teamed up with Syria, an enemy of them both, to fight against the southern kingdom. They were warring with one another. But then in 722 BC, ultimate tragedy happened. And the Assyrian kingdom, which was here further to the east, came and took all of these 10 northern tribes into exile. And if you know what happened, these are now called the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Because these 10 tribes, these these 10 members of the family of Abraham that there was so much promise with, that these were the families that were going to bless the whole world, these 10 families, in all essence, for all intents and purposes, were lost. Some of them eventually came back and became what we read in the New Testament as the Samaritans. Some of them uh, formed hidden kingdoms, just a very few uh, of them had hidden outposts, and some of those actually hidden outposts in the land of Assyria survived even till like this day. But, but the vast majority of them, the, the basically the whole nation, just blended into the Assyrian way of life and the culture and the fear of God and the love of God. It was all lost with these 10 tribes. The only two tribes that stuck around, that had any sort of presence were these two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that existed here in the south. Now, this is fascinating. This is a total aside. It has nothing really to do with the sermon, but it just shows you how powerful the word of God is because the promise of the Messiah, the promise of the anointed one that would save Israel was promised way back in Genesis 49 that that guy, the Messiah, would come from the tribe of Judah. And here, 700 years later, 
10 of the 12, I mean, think of the chances there. 10 of the 12 tribes are taken away, but one of the tribes that was preserved just so happened to be the tribe from which the anointed one, the Messiah, would come. Is that just, you know, ant- you know a chance of antiquities? Or is it evidence that something is happening here? That this maybe is beyond just a man-made book? Well, anyway... After 722, as I mentioned, this, this, this southern kingdom continued to go on. But then in 586, tragedy struck again when a different kingdom, the Babylonians, came and took the southern nation, the nation of Judah, themselves into a different exile, away to Babylonian. And worse than that, Jerusalem, the holy city, the capital city, the city of God, was, was destroyed. And even worse than that, the temple in the middle of the city, the place where the glory of God was dwelling, was stone by stone, totally destroyed. And now, they've been in Babylon for more than 10 years. The Babylonians were ruling. The temple was destroyed. And it seemed like all the promises were lost. They had seen, these people of Judah, they had seen what happened to the northern kingdom, the lost tribes of Israel. These people were dispersed and never to be heard from again. And now it seemed that the same thing was going to happen to them. They were dispersed. They were in exile. They had no land, no temple, no victory. And this is when Ezekiel begins to speak. And this is when Ezekiel has this vision that Elizabeth read for us today. And there's so much in this text. I wish I had a few hours with you, but in the few minutes that we have remaining, I want to talk about a few things that we see in this text. Three promises that God is delivering to his people in this text. The new life, the new people, and the new king. So let's look at the new life. You know, I was just thinking about this text, and I hope you were paying attention to the imagery of it. It begins with this vision of Ezekiel in a valley of dry bones. If you think about that, I mean, there, is, there, there aren't many more terrifying images than that. Imagine yourself just being in a valley and, and there dry human bones all around you, everywhere. And here's Ezekiel standing among these bones that weren't just bones. I mean, these weren't just freshly killed human carcasses. No, they were dead, dead. They were just bones. And they weren't just bones. They were dry bones. You ever uh, find like a bone in the woods? You remember as a kid, I'd be exploring in the wood. You find like a deer bone or a coyote bone or something. So it's hard to even know what it is. It, it almost seems more like the dirt than it does like something that was once part of something that was living. And this is, this is the vision that Ezekiel has. These bones are returning to dust. These were the chosen people of God, and this is what they have become, dead, and not just dead, returning to dust dead. And what God does is he commands Ezekiel to do something to these bones. You know what he says to Ezekiel? He says, Ezekiel, go preach. Now that's a bit of a strange command, right? I've preached to plenty of people who were sleeping before. But I've never preached to dry bones. But Ezekiel begins to preach. Verse 4 says, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, 
I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and will cover you with skin and I will put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. There is something about the character of God. Matt talked about it when he was talking about the angels. There is something about the character of God that loves this idea of renewal, redemption, rebirth, new life. It's part of his character. You see it all throughout the scripture. In the book of Genesis, the whole world is destroyed by a flood. What does God do? He renews the world that was lost and destroyed. Israel was taken away from the promised land and they went into Egypt. What does God do? He restores them to the land. Here, God is restoring Israel who was in exile, the temple, the city that was destroyed. God is going to renew, to rebuild when Jesus came, what did he say? He said, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must what? You must be born again. You must experience a new birth, a new life. Of course, the culmination of Jesus' ministry is that he died and was resurrected. He experienced new life. There is something about the character of God in the very end of the scripture. What do we see? We see God making all things new. Not making new things, making all things new. This, this Greek word of kainos, the idea of new in terms of quality, renewed, restored, redeemed. There's something about the character of God that loves new life, that loves resurrection, that loves rebirth. Look at verse 12 through 14. It says, Oh, my people, I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves. And raise you from your graves, O my people. And I'll put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. New birth, new life. You can't be a Christian unless you understand this. When you become a Christian, you experience this. Graves opening up. Bones coming together, new birth, new life, new love, a new knowledge. There's this refrain that you see over and over in this passage. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This is the result of the new birth. You really know that God is the Lord. You've heard me say this before, but you were designed by God to know God and to know that he is the Lord, to know that he is chief, to know that he is above everything else. You were made, you were designed to treasure God above everything else. And sin, what sin is, is to begin treasuring something else more than you treasure God, to begin treasuring a creation of God more than you treasure the creator of all things. And this is the story of Scripture. This is what happened with Adam and Eve. This is Israel's story. God was among them, but they began delighting in lesser things. 
God was in their midst, and they went after the gods of the other nations. They worshipped idols. They forgot about God's word. They treasured lesser things. They disobeyed the clear command of God. And in all of this, as they wandered away from delighting in God, their souls began to die to the point where we finally come to this scene. They had wandered so far from God that their souls, their spirit, was just a valley of bones. Now this may sound dramatic, but if your life is not centered on God, then the same thing is happening to you now. You're drying out. You're losing your life. You were designed to treasure God chiefly, and if you're not treasuring God chiefly, you're not living to design. You're dying. All of us are like Israel. You know, all of us to some degree, I mean, you may be, this may be your first time in church, and if it is, I'm so glad you're here, but all of us, just by being Western American people, have have some experience with God. You've been around a prayer, you've read the Bible, you've probably, most of us, have been in a church service before. But do you really know that the Lord is God? You really know that he is the Lord. Then you will know that I am the Lord For so many of us, he's not chief in your life. He's not most treasured in your life. You are choosing lesser things. You are following lesser gods. You are seeking enjoyment somewhere else, and the result of all of that is death. It's dry bones. This is what happened to Israel. You know, there's a lot written about the great idols. These are just three to choose today of money, sex, and power. And at least in our context, again, these are three powerful idols. I don't know many people that are not at least somewhat captivated by these things. And again, I understand. I mean, these things are good things. Money is great, right? It makes life very convenient. Sex, people find so much fulfillment. Power, I mean, who doesn't want to be the guy that's in control? These idols are so enticing. And the world promises us, if you serve these idols, and if you serve them well, you'll be happy, you'll be fulfilled. But is that true? You know, I was hanging out with a guy yesterday. He's got a lot of money. He's doing very, very well. You know what he was doing yesterday? The whole time I was hanging out with him? He was checking his phone to look at the stock market. And I was like, it's Saturday. It's not going to get any worse today, man. <laughs> the market's closed. Just enjoy the moment. You know, I've got another buddy who's, he's like, you know, the Buckhead Bachelor, right? He's, he's my age, and he's still like living the college dream, you know, and, but he's a good-looking guy. He's got plenty of money. He meets girls all the time. He can have as much sex as he wants. You think he's happy? Got another buddy that, um, you know, a lot of power. I, Colin Hansen, when he was here at the last Covenant Institute, and he said, he said very clearly, he's like, I'm not making a political statement at all. And he wasn't. But he said, you know, imagine a guy who had billions of dollars, who had his name on buildings all over the world in the coolest cities, who could have his pick of any supermodel, and then you had the most powerful job, most powerful office ever. You know, according to these idols, that person would have complete peace and complete poise and complete happiness. 
But we know the rest of the story. The point is, is these idols don't ultimately serve. Money, sex, power, they promise a lot, but they never deliver. You know, John Piper recently wrote a book um, called Living in the Light, and he talks about these idols, money, sex, and power. And what he says is, he says, look, all of these things are good things when they operate, the analogy he uses, when they operate as planets in the solar system around the sun, who is God. When, when they operate in their right order, following their right orbit, anchored by the thing that is really at the center of the universe, when they're rightly held in place. If, if they're rightly held in place by God, who is the Son, if he's at the center, then we understand that we can use all of these things, that these things can actually be gifts of God that we can use to bring him glory, that we can use to serve his kingdom, that we can use to, to make his creation flow in a beautiful way. It's when the created things become the ultimate things that we get in trouble. That's when we get into trouble. That's, and this is the whole story of sin in the Bible. And so, how do we get rid of it? How do we get the new life? How do we come to know that the Lord is God, that he is the Son, that he is the center? How do we get back how do we recenter? There was a 19th century uh, Scottish minister named Thomas Chalmers. And he preached this sermon one time called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Let me just read a few lines what he says. He says, There are two ways in which a practical moralist may attempt to displace from the human heart its love of the world money, sex, power, and these kinds of things. Either by a demonstration of the world's vanity so that the heart shall be prevailed upon it simply to withdraw its regards from an object that is not worthy of it. Lesser things, right? Or by setting forth another object, even God, as more worthy of its attachment so as that the heart shall be prevailed upon not to resign an old affection, which will have nothing to succeed it, but to exchange an old affection for a new affection. So the next slide. My purpose is to show that from the constitution of our nature, the former method is altogether incompetent and ineffectual, and that the latter method will alone suffice for the rescue and recovery of the heart from the wrong affection that dominates over it. You see what he's saying here? He's saying if your reaction to getting rid of the lesser things of your life is just to suppress them or to try to get away from them, then it's incompetent and ineffectual because your heart was made to love. Your heart was made to find value in something else. Your heart was made to be given to something. No, the only way to recenter, the only way to know that the Lord your God is to find a greater affection. It's to find your affection in God himself. It's to find your affection in Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. There's another 20th century preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he was a great preacher. He was a doctor and he, he preached with this very kind of straightforward doctor giving kind of like a very serious but loving diagnosis kind of way. 
And one day he was talking to his church about what it really meant to be a Christian. And he said, here's the fundamental question. What is the state of your heart? What do you really desire? Do you really know that you have a soul that will go on forever? Are you concerned about that soul? What's your real interest in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why do you believe in him? What is the state of your heart? And I would ask you, what is the state of your heart? What is the place of affection in your heart? What do you really desire? And you might be saying, well, Jason, I know where you're going here. And I have believed. There have been times in my life when I truly have treasured the Lord. But to be honest, I don't, I don't love him so much right now. He doesn't excite me like he should right now. And here's what I would say to you. Here's the deal. How does an affection work? How does love, how does a love work? And here's the answer. We have an affection for the things that we see as beautiful that we then pursue. We have an affection for the things that we find to be beautiful that we then pursue. I went to Jacob Byers' piano recital yesterday. Jacob's in fourth grade, and he's a great pianist. I was so proud of him. And uh, it was great to be there. I was thinking, man, this, this guy, fourth grader, he's worked hard. He played all these tunes. He took bows. It was awesome. But as I was there, I was thinking about Matt, wherever Matt is. Um, and I was thinking about a fourth grade Matt Papa at his piano recital. Because, you know, Matt took lessons and had to figure out how to play the piano and had to learn all of these things. And, you know, Matt loves music. It's, it's awesome. You know, we have this great piano at our office. And a lot of times Matt will just go downstairs during the middle of the day and just start playing it. And it's amazing. He loves music. He loves to make music on this piano. He has an affection for it. It's a beautiful thing. But here's the deal. Matt didn't just look at a piano one day and become a really good pianist. That's not the way affections or love works. No, he had to look at the piano and then he had to practice the piano. And he had to pursue the piano. He had to get lessons. He had to perform at recitals. He had to say no to some things, to, to, to stay inside and work on scales. It was a discipline for him, but it was a discipline that created this love, that created an affection. That's how an affection works. When you see something as beautiful that then you pursue, what do you see as beautiful? And what are you pursuing what do you love? Have you really seen Christ as supreme? Are you really pursuing him? Have you really seen the beauty of the gospel? Have you really been captured by what God and Christ has done for you? And the good news that I have for you today is that if you're feeling conviction, and if you want to, to recenter your life on God, the great news that I have for you today, if your life is feeling dry and empty, the great news that I have for you today is that God does love you. And he has provided a way of salvation for you. This vision that Ezekiel had became a reality. And God has a plan to make dry bones live. You see, Jesus was the one who came. And, and, and 
even though he was the true Israel, the one who never sinned, the one who always obeyed God, the one who should never have been outcast, the one who should never have been laid waste in the valley of death, Jesus became death. Jesus became the outcast. Jesus was the one who was poured out. He became the fallen Israel for us so that in him we could live, so that in him we could find new life. And if you believe in Jesus, and if you believe in the beauty of this story and the beauty of this gospel, then we, like these bones, can be brought to life, to new life. The breath of God comes upon us, bringing dead things back to life. And this is what God wants to do in you, to restore life, real life, full life. This is the new life. Now, I know I've, I've spent most of my time on point number one, but I, uh, I do want to just spend a little time on, on point number two and three. The second thing that we see in this passage is the new people. You know, there's a section where Ezekiel's talking, and I don't know if you caught it when Elizabeth was reading. It's kind of confusing. He talks about the stick of Judah and the stick of Joseph, and these two sticks are put together, and you're like, what is he talking about with the sticks? Now, this is interesting, and commentators have kind of battled over this. They've talked about this. Let me just, let me read the passage just to kind of uh, refresh you here. It says, verse 19, Behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join them with the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. Again, commentators have kind of argued over this. What is he talking about? Because as I said before, the stick of Ephraim represents the ten tribes, the ten lost tribes. And these tribes, I mean, to this day, have been lost. We, we've never heard from them. And so people will say, well, has this not been fulfilled yet? The ten tribes are, are still lost. What, what does this mean? Who are these ten lost tribes? And, and as I said earlier, the Bible works in this way. It is totally true. There really were ten tribes that really were lost, but these Ten tribes also serve, I believe, as an analogy for all the lost tribes. There's a sense where everyone outside of the love of God, everyone outside of treasuring God supremely is lost. It's a lost tribe. Every family of the earth, every tribe of the earth that has not seen God as supreme, these ten tribes are an analogy for these Families, they've fallen out of God's design. They've fallen out of God's order, and they are the lost tribes of earth. And what we see in this passage is a foreshadowing of what was to come. God was going to join Judah. Judah is a representative of Christ. God was going to join his chosen, beloved people with all of the lost tribes, where in him they would be one restored and renewed people. We see this working out. We see this working out. There's a couple of scenes like this in the Old Testament. We see this working out particularly in Christ as he begins bringing Jew and Gentile together. But ultimately, we see it at the end of all things where what do we read in Revelation? After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and all peoples and all languages standing together before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out in loud voices, Salvation! belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A new people from this dead people, 
God raised a new people and is raising a new people from every tribe. He is uniting all of the lost tribes together to be his kingdom. And this is why, if you are in Christ, there is no room for division. There is no room for classism or racism. There's no room for division. This is why that if you're in Christ, the local church is so important. Because we're learning how to be a new people. How to be this new people with new life that aren't living according to the values of the world, but are living according to the way of Christ. You know, people say to me all the time, well, I'm not really a member of a church, but I'm a member of the church, the global church. And really all I hear when they say that is, I don't want accountability in my life. Because that's not the design of the New Testament at all. What do we see in the New Testament? We see a broad, global, universal church made up of people who are manifesting that in a local, unified context with other believers. It takes other people to learn the way of the new life and the way of the new people. To learn things like patience and compassion and humility and service. These things are only really learned in community. A new life, a new people. I wish I could say more, but lastly, a new king. God says in verse 24, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. In verse 27, my dwelling place, this is a theme throughout the scripture, my dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. This is the great thing about Christmas. You know, you, Christmas is fun for everybody. If you're here and you're not a Christian, like, Christmas is fun for you. Like, it's fun for all of us. I mean, if only for the parties, Christmas is great. Right? I mean, I'm kind of feeling sick today, really, because I, I think I've, you know, gone to many too, too many Christmas gatherings. I'm just worn out. <laughs> too many sweets, you know. Um, Christmas is fun for everybody. But where Christmas becomes powerful, where Christmas becomes life-changing, is when it becomes more than just a happy holiday, a festive holiday. No, where it becomes great is when it becomes the celebration of this new king. Some of you look into the manger and you see a religious symbol of love, right? You look in the manger, you say, ah, look, a baby. It's God's, it's a sign of purity. It's a sign of God's love for us. And that is true. But what God wants you to do, what God wants you to see by his word is when you look in the manger, what he wants you to see is this new king, the new ruler, the one who's come to call this new people together and give this new people new life. That's who you're supposed to see when you look in the manger. Not a sweet symbol of love, but you're supposed to see your king. Like Charles Wesley said, born thy people to deliver. Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring by thine own eternal spirit. Rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to the glorious throne. You see, when you understand Christmas, you really understand Christmas, you understand Advent, we've been talking about this this whole Advent reading, 
it's, it's backward-looking and it's forward-looking. We look back at Christmas to remember that we are not forgotten. That even though in our sin we're destined to be a valley of dry bones, we remember at Christ- Christmas that God, by His merciful grace, has chosen to love us and to send us a Savior and a Redeemer who breathes new life over dry bones like us. But we also, at Christmas, look forward. We don't just look back, we look forward. We look to the, re- to the second coming of this King. When this king will come and his salvation, as Tim said this morning, will be fully known. His kingdom will be fully known. Justice will be fully known. Goodness will be truly known. Peace and poise and healing will be truly known. And I encourage you today, my friends who are hurt, full of anxiety and bitterness and sin and all the rest, to remember that promise, to remember these promises, that God is breathing life over dry bones, that God is restoring a people unto himself, a unified and beloved people that God has given us and is giving us a new and eternal king who makes all things new and all things right. Believe these promises. It's what kept Israel faithful in Babylon. It's what kept them enduring through exile all the way to their return. And these promises, in the same way, will keep us faithful and will make us endure until we fully know God's presence with us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these promises of Ezekiel these words that came upon this ancient prophet, Father, that still speak. And I pray they would speak to us now. Father, I I pray now for new life, that you would breathe new life over dry bones. Father, for some that, that have never known you, for some who just have deep parts of their soul who are dry. Father, I pray that you would just show them now your beauty and that they would pursue you, Lord. Father, I pray that we would be a representative of this new people. People who are redeemed, people who love one another, people who live as if thy kingdom has come. And Father, I pray, Father, that we would know and recognize and worship the new king. Father, may we recognize uh, this true king and this true kingdom. May we center our lives on Christ. So Lord, do this now in us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.